Hello, and greetings from the Mirror Zone. I'm Bryce Skidmore. And I'm David Leskin, and this is the Mirror Zone. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we straight crashed through it with a bunch of strangers we didn't want to be with. No, and, you know, to be honest, I'm kind of glad we crashed through because I didn't like looking at their reflections. I didn't either. You know, it was um, a very revolutionary feeling to find out that you wanted to be the only person left on a planet. Yeah, and the best part was when we recorded all this in our dying uh, state of starvation and madness. Some astronaut found this in a cave, everyone. This is how you're hearing this. <laughs> yeah, it's it's Pluto's cave. Either you're not going to listen to the end of this episode, or you've already, or like you haven't read Joanna Russ's novel, We Who Are About To. But if you did, trust me, that's fucking hilarious. Yeah, we just knocked your socks off. <laughs> you just don't know it yet. It's, no. a, it's like the five-finger death punch. You have to walk ten steps and think about our joke before your head explodes. Yeah. <laughs> like well that's weird i feel thought of <laughs> yep and then you die cursing our names in a cave hallucinating no i'm like i'm so stoked that we can that we uh we get to do this like it's it's been a minute and i'm, I'm glad we can uh start with joanna russ this novel is published in 1976 and apparently was not well received that's right if you look up some of the details about uh critical reception there were quite a few different reviewers who gave it pretty scathing reviews mm. which like i i think is unfair because i've read other of joanna russ's work i don't think that this is like necessarily like the best that she could do but i think it's a really fascinating novel and i feel like i think one of the reasons why people like view it that way is because like it is like really intensely jarring like it, it challenges your sensibility like i think good science fiction should no doubt about it. I think that a lot of times you start reading a science fiction story or short story and you're not expecting necessarily for the sort of the visceral descriptions of what happens, the soul searching, the death. There's plenty of death. So much. Yeah. And uh, it, it really, it, I'm glad that we, it took us a little bit of time to do this because I really needed a lot of the themes to sink in before I could really understand it. Mm. No, it's, there's some stuff where it's like, I, you know, just sitting down now and, like, talking about it tonight, like, where I'm just like, oh, fuck. Like, a million oh fucks all the way out throughout this entire book. No, it's um, it's super good. Uh, I'm glad we get to do it. And uh, with that, should we uh, do a plot synopsis? Let's do it. Let's jump right in. Alrighty. So um, I'm going to uh, want to do a plot synopsis right quick. Um, so the novel, We Who Are About To, by Joanna Russ, is uh, about a woman, a nameless narrator, who is not described physically very much, except that we know that she's short. She's shorter than most of the other people in her, uh, in her contingency. She was on an interstellar ship with a bunch of other people when it crashed on this planet. And it's, it's weird, like, the days are super long, and she's there with only five other... Or, there's five other people. So, uh, so there are only eight people on this planet, and uh, the narrator really quickly surmises that their chances of survival are very slim. But the group doesn't really see things that way. The group eventually start forming these like really shitty little pocket governments within themselves, and uh, our narrator, who is a musicologist, so she's like the DJ for the ship, and uh, she also carries like a lot of drugs on her. So she's like an apothecary, so like people keep coming to her for like for medicine. Well, she starts to get like really uh, suspicious of these people like from the get-go, and eventually one of them lets loose on physical violence with the other, 
uh, a man named Alan uh, hits a woman named Natalie. Like, at, at that point, she realizes that they now live in a lawless society. The men very uh, quickly sort of manage to wrest control, except Natalie, like, you know, has the ear of the one dude, so it's like, it's this really weird sort of, like, dictatorship of two. And they start coming up with these really weird ideas, like, um, we need to repopulate. So, which is strange. The narrator calls them out and saying that, you know, that's kind of bullshit. We don't need more babies. We need drinkable water. The crew doesn't see it that way. So she hightails it out of there on, um... On her broom. On her broom. It's a transport device that is sort of like a motorized hover stick. And you ride it. So it's like, and this is just, there's that. The narrator carries around, uh, drugs, like, in potions. So it's like... This has some very definite, like, witch overtones, especially, and eventually, because she's not so cool with, like, the way they do things, she excises herself from society. They get really, like, antsy about that, and they come to kill her, or at least to try and drag her back in. In self-defense, she kills them, and has to, uh, deal with that. Oh, and I forgot the worst part, uh, Lori. Yeah, Lori is, uh, the child of the group and uh she's definitely not able to take care of herself she's not completely all there mm. like it's it seems almost monstrous and how merciful it is because it's just coldly merciful that that's one of the great themes about this story throughout uh the narrator from go is convinced that they have no chance mm. and that it would be a kindness for them to focus mm. on how they live the quality of their last days rather than trying to forge into some sort of impossible future. Which I think is super brilliant because that's the plot of like 90% of shit that you will see that it's like, you know, action, adventure, and space. We've been stranded somehow far away from home. What do we do? And the whole drama is how we survive. And the, the reality is you don't. No. You don't. And the narrator gets that. Like, you know, she actually would rather just spend the time that she has left, like, being chill. Sort of coming to terms with, you know, the shitty hand that they've all been dealt. But instead, like, uh, John Uday, who's one of the people, and Valeria, and everyone else, they just, that's not what they want. They want, you know, they, they think that somehow they can colonize this planet and make it like home again. Which is why the narrator keeps the poison that she has and the gun mm. she has hidden both very close to her and away from the other people. Yeah, no, she's she's definitely brought contraband to the planet and she is and she will like her her shit will eventually get searched and she knows that it will, so she finds really cool, inventive ways to hide her stuff. One of the things that I find super interesting about um about Joanna Russ, uh, she's just she's like a super interesting writer. If you guys ever get a chance you should check it out. There's uh, the female man is my favorite book that she road um but this is the thing i didn't find out until i read the uh the foreword to this book was that um apparently she was uh, at cornell at the same time as vladimir nabokov the guy who wrote lolita so right. like she and i guess she dedicated and then chaos in part to him so i'm like that's that's a cool little thing where it's like the the guy who wrote lolita and my favorite science fiction author like you know we're in the same classroom at one point fantastic connection i love that shit is it um well let's finish off a summary yeah. Um, so we had gotten to everyone is dead. She's established, even with all of these other people not draining the resources, that she's dying. It's a foregone conclusion, and she resigns herself to starvation and takes herself off to a cave, basically to live out her last days in what turns out to even be last seasons, mm -hmm. as far as this book takes us all the way to the end due to the fact that the whole narrative structure of the story is her recording her thoughts on her vocorder. Yeah. 
she keeps this on, on voice activated, in the cave so that her final thoughts can all be recorded. Mm. Yeah, no, so basically what you're listening to is the narrative of the last human being to survive on this planet, which is like, I mean, it's really, like, it's really cool. It's very, like, not Mary Shelley-esque. She wrote this whole novel called, like, The Last Man on Earth, and it was, like, this novel was placed in a in a church on this altar and anything that might come across it can uncover the chronicle of the last man but the irony is no one will come across it right we're lucky enough through through uh, science fiction uh lens to be able mm-hmm. to hear this narrative but otherwise it's probably going to ring out empty to the rest of the universe after she passes yeah which does come to pass in this book it's the final section where uh our narrator she begins to hallucinate she begins to see people in her life yeah she sees her was it and this is a thing that i think uh we should bring up is she's a member of a very strange cult called the tremblers where it's like and they're kind of set up to seem like the quakers if you're familiar but like very like um very interested in social justice very pacifistic and and which makes it sort of all the more shocking that she's like the perpetrator of these crimes. But um, her faith seems to be one of the only things that like actually leads her to build the appropriate fear and apprehension of the situation she's found herself in. Like everyone else is just like, ah, oh, you're stupid, you know, you're superstitious. And she's like, no, nah, it's just, I believe that, you know, death isn't something that we all need to fear. Right. And, and it's what's so beautiful about the, the closing of the book is, we're not shielded from the idea of death. There's no fantasy that she may have gone to some sort of afterlife, although she muses on a lot of those She does, and, and then, but then she says, it's better if it's not true. It, it, and it is. she's like, what am I going to do? Am I going to see all the fucking people I killed? Right, which is bad enough that she's hallucinating them while she's dying, but mm-hmm. to at least she doesn't have, she can look forward to that going away once the starvation ends. Yeah. And and so the end of the book is, it's very removed from the, the beginning two sections in that it's just sort of like contemplation of life. We find out the details about our narrator, what made her the way she is, the people that she met, and what she considers to be important and lasting moments. Mm-hmm. And and with that comes the end of the book. Was it, did you feel like a bit of closure? Like, I mean, do you feel like sort of that this was a peaceful end for our narrator in a way? Or like, do you feel like it was a little a little problematic? I mean, it's... I don't mean problematic, like, in, like, ooh. I felt bad for her. Yeah. I mean, you know, the fact that she was able to give all these other people there the sweet release that she herself craved, mm-hmm. but not being able to give that to herself, that she had to go through this lengthy process of dying. Mm-hmm. It, it makes me sad, but at the same time, you know, we were there with her in a way. Yeah. How did you feel about it? Did you find it problematic? See, the thing that's weird is I, like, I was super on board with it, but it's like, like you said, once she gets in the cave, things get, like, like, I want to say, like, supernatural, but, like, not, like, not, like, supernatural, like, with ghosts, but, like, like, way more natural than I bargained for. Like, it was just, like, this, it was, oh, wow, now we are sitting in a cave contemplating truly the end of life and all the philosophical baggage that goes on with that. Right. So it's, like, it, it, she is hallucinating and seeing crazy shit, but it's almost like, I'm, like, wow, this is just, like, relentless. And it's r- relentless in such a way that it keeps bringing up inescapability of death, but then as she approaches it, her stake in that and what she did to like to these other people like there where it was like and pretty much everything that happens on the planet echoes in the end of her life and and i do think that it is sort of i i, I was clenched the my whole body was clenched the whole time i was reading that last section of the story just you know this sort of drawn out metaphysical contemplation while you it's framed in the sense of neurons you know fizzling out and and 
and running out of food and, and the mm. body biology narrative is the reasons why, whereas in most other books or stories, you talk about the main character dying and they're hallucinating. Mm. It's a given that that's why, mm. but they hint that the person dying maybe doesn't realize that or is, is too out of it to know the difference between reality or not. And our mm. narrator, for the most part, has a very cold, strong grasp on reality. Mm. Through, through the entire ordeal and up to the very end. Yeah. And it was a very, it was a challenging read. I was very affected. Yeah, and it's like, like you said, it, it's part of the thing that actually made this super powerful to me was that entire end where it was like, I'm like, and it was weird because it's like, everybody's dead about halfway through the novel. Most of it is, or like the, the whole solid second half is mostly just her living in solitude. The thing that really freaked me out about it was just, there's this poem by William Blake called The Book of Thel, and it sort of touches weirdly upon a similar, like, ontological uh, principle that is very frightening to all of us, and that's, like, it's just sort of, you know, what happens as we approach death, and this novel tried to do it. But the line from Blake is, like, uh, towards the end, why cannot the ear be closed to its own destruction of the glistening eye to the poison of a smile? Yeah, and in the same way, I, 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 I totally get what you're saying, and I feel like there's just this sort of constant holding in of breath that you feel. You're waiting for the contraction. You're waiting for it to disperse. And the story doesn't give you that release. You know, you're dragged along. You kind of feel like you're taken to the precipice of death through her yeah. descriptions as she passes. Yeah. It, it, you know, it, was almost, it was almost a part where I'm just like, well, just fucking kill yourself, man. Like, you can You can. Do it. You can. You literally have. You're she the got close. Yeah, you're the only one on the planet with implements to kill yourself. Like, But it's like, no, she wasn't about that. She she wanted to die the way she wanted to die. And it was a pretty spectacular way to go out. She, you know, there's sections where she, she recites everything that she's ever known for the most part or everything that's important to her out loud between you know when she was trying to get away from the people when they're finally all dead mm -hmm. and it's like this isn't just the process of somebody dying this is the process of somebody compartmentalizing everything that made them who they are as yeah. they die no it kind of reminded me of uh gaspar from uh the ellison story that we read where it was like you know every every memory he put together and he gave he gave uh to billy canetta for safekeeping like he remembered someone to someone else but it's like if I just take my intellect or like everything that I know about this person or this series of events and I just embody it in something, then it won't have been for nothing. And in a way, that is how her death works. Is uh, she she talks a lot to the others before they all pass away, before she kills them, I should say, mm -hmm. uh, about wanting to die, about death being the only sane course of action. But she does embody her situation and and what she had to do to survive, and lets that be what keeps her going rather than just taking that way out that she even espouses to them. Yeah. Man, that's like, this is a thing about this story that's really crazily, like, I want to say empowering in a weird way for me, but yeah. it's like, it really is that, like, I mean, she's, you have sort of an obvious overtone with uh, feminism, with a control over one's own body. Right. You know, the entire, like, the big rupture of society begins when a man hits a woman, and then later they all think that they have a right on the women's bodies of the party. Like, it's like, oh, no, we have to, you're a breeding machine now. And she's like, I didn't, no, I'm not. I, I refuse to do that. I refuse to submit to this. And then when that happens, like, yeah, she refuses to submit because she's like, we're all going to die here. It's pointless to try, so maybe we can just die in peace. And they wouldn't let her, so... <laughs> They won't let her die in peace. They won't let her get away. 
I mean, you know, if she if she has to force her philosophy of freedom on them by force, then that's what she has to do. See, no, and it's like, I'm on her side the whole time, but then you put it that way, and I'm just like, oh, that's the perverse dark side. It is the dark side of it, and it's why I think she doesn't take an easier way out, is I think she's sort of wearing these killings of what she had to do as burdens upon herself that she needs to live through all the way to the end. I didn't even think about that, but yeah, like, she's... It's why she's haunted by she, the ghosts of them. Yeah, it's like she actually did real wrong. Wrong, and that's why she's not going to kill herself because she's going to feel the remorse of it the whole time. Yeah, and she does. I mean, as as her mind is going, what we're talking about are all the things that she muses out loud to herself. I find it incredibly interesting the the tropes that this novel breaks. Yeah, it's definitely all about deconstruction. No, and it's like, what was that, that Vonnegut that you were talking about earlier? The Samuel Delaney bit? Right, so in the forward of our edition, uh, the reprint, Wesleyan U Press edition, Sam Delaney has this quote about how Kurt Vonnegut would characterize what the tropes that this is uh, skewering, I would say. At the height of the New Wave, an SF convention that particularly exercised editor Moorcock at New Worlds was what Kurt Vonnegut had already characterized as the impossibly generous universe of science fiction. When in the real world, 95% of all commercial airline crashes are 100% fatal, and we live in a solar system in which presumably only one planet can support any life at all, from the 30s to the 50s, science fiction was nevertheless full of spaceship crashes, in which everyone gets up and walks away from the wreckage unscathed, and usually out onto a planet with breathable atmosphere, amenable weather, and a high-tech civilization in wait nearby. This is the fundamental the fundamental convention Russ's novel takes to task. Oh, I love that quote. It's so perfect. It is really perfect because can you you can imagine this story being done by any other science fiction writer and it would play out a bunch of different ways. But I was honestly shocked at the way that this one played out. Totally mm. different from anything else I've ever read. Yeah. No, and it's like I love that too, where it's like the attack on something like or like the way Kurt Vonnegut described science fiction as being impossibly hospitable. Right. Well, it's, it's all about, like, the heliocentric theory and, yeah. and human history of, you know, just assuming that because all the fertile conditions for us to have the thought about why we have these fertile conditions is there, that that means that that's what everything is like everywhere. Yeah. Especially in science fiction. No, exactly. And it's like, and I love it too, because it's something that really, I'd like, I'll, I don't like to nitpick everything to where I don't enjoy it anymore, but like, I'm not going to lie, sometimes when I watch Star Trek, like, I'll be like, oh look, you could just walk on this planet, it's fine, like the gravity's not crushing you, you can breathe the air, there's, you know, the, that wonderful but delicate balance of 2% oxygen right. to the rest of the nitrogen right. that is ideal for human breathing. No, it's just all perfect, man. Go out. The universe is your fucking oyster. Like, and I like this because it's like they can't trust the water. Like, they can't trust the food, the grass, nothing. It's surprising that they are able to survive even as much as they are on this crash-landed planet at all. Yeah. The the little bit that they get is more just to sink in the fact that they're doomed. And and you know, um, something else that this this is an aside. Call me crazy. The first thing I thought when I saw Lost in Space, the movie, you know, the remake with Matt LeBlanc? Yeah. Matt LeBlanc and Heather Graham are going to be sleeping together, right? Oh, totally. Like, that's that's how that plays out? That's how that movie's going. I... <laughs> it's got... Yeah. That's pretty much the first thing that comes to mind. And, and, you know, that's exactly the first thing that came to these people's minds. I'm not sure they were thinking about Heather Graham when they were thinking about the narrator, but I can't confirm or deny that. Well, no, and it's true. This is like, it, and it's a wonderful deconstruction of that Flesh Gordon thing where it's yes, like, uh, exactly. yes, 
look at us, we're sexy people in space, of course we're going to bone. And it's like, <laughs> maybe you won't. There's another movie, Supernova, you ever seen that one? Never seen Supernova. A bunch of blah 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 science fiction horror stuff happens. We don't need to go into it. It's not mm. a great movie. <laughs> but the end of the movie has the two final main characters who are, of course, incredibly sexy, boning in their escape pod as they go jump into hyperspace. Oh, naturally. It's, it's like it's the first thing we think about. It's space, the final mm. frontier. When we gonna bone? Yeah, when can we fuck in it? <laughs> Which is, like, wonderful, because unless we can figure out a way to, like, um, to have, uh, basically to have, like, sort of a gravitational-type body blood pressure on in space, we won't get boners in it. No, no, not at all. A lot of things people need to think about when they go in space. I would definitely put boners pretty high up on that list. Yeah, like, you just, you can't fuck anymore in space. Like, and that's a thing that The Expanse didn't tell me. That's true. <laughs> we're, come on, Star Wars, tell me these things. Star Wars, come on. You, I'm looking, we're looking at you, Star Wars. Yeah, I think that, you know, I have a lot of things to say about uh, The Last Jedi that we don't need to make about this podcast, but I think Ryan Johnson really could have brought up space fucking. Yeah. <laughs> Missed opportunity. Side note, tune into our Star Wars podcast. <laughs> right. Our, our eight our eight part feature on the last Jedi. Our eight part eight hour each feature on the last Jedi that will end with uh pretty much uh bra burning. <laughs> I don't. I'm wearing a lot of bras that day. I'm burning all of my bras. <laughs> uh. We twisted away a little bit. Let's 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 jump on our broomstick and hop slightly back in. <laughs> Uh, That's how I heard it in my head, too, by the way. Yes. It's like a little whirring. Like, yeah. (laughs) Kind of like the Jetson signal. I love the the Jetson space cars. Me, too. That's the best noise. No, I mean, this is a a thing that I I think is interesting, where it's like, it's a story that is couched in a great deal of this violence, pitting survivors against survivors. But it's all based on this sort of, like, uh, philosophy of personal liberty, and then you eventually see, like, what toll that takes on the narrator. Um, But, like, I love this quote that uh, Samuel Delaney gives. Uh, He says, radically, Russ suggests that the quality of life is the purpose of living, and reproduction, reproduction only a reparative process to extend that quality. Only a feudal fascist societies can really believe wholly that reproduction, i.e. the manufacture of cat and fodder, is life's point. That's I love that because it's just like one of the things that she brings up right away when they're like, oh, we need to all start fucking so that we can have more babies. And she's like, we don't even have clean water. Priorities, like, people. Like, can you not? Like, you know, who's going to want to live if we don't have food? Like, and you want to make more people? She's not shocked about it, though. She's just sort of disappointed and resigned to it that they have to start going down that road almost mm-hmm. immediately. Yeah, and there's like, there's a thing that I admire about her, and I don't know if it's like, it's part of her religiosity or if it's just intrinsic to her as a person, but it is the, she does keep her own counsel. Like, she is kind of, she's completely sovereign of herself. Yeah, and, and that's what part of the big fight is about. It's not about necessarily the, the, the physical fight with them about not having to reproduce itself, but but being able to have her own inner narrative that's different from everyone else's and not... Mm-hmm. And, and be able to know that she believes that no matter what, that they can't change that. Yeah. No, so much so that she has to, like, lock her vote order at one point. That's right. I mean, she does start getting paranoid, and rightfully, rightfully so. Rightfully so. Yeah. <laughs> you know, what was that saying? You're not really paranoid if everyone's out to get you. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they aren't out to get you. Exactly. <laughs>
And and these people are definitely out to get her. They super are. Was it? I like this this other Delaney quote too. Uh, Russ's refusal to avoid the realities of death, both as a social and personal fact, and a rich discursive field for metaphysical elaboration, is one of her major writerly strengths. Again and again, it brings her writerly ironies to a limit point beyond the place where it can easily resolve them into comedy, or correspondingly, into preachment. I know. I, the the fact that this whole story takes place from the musings of a person's recorder. It's what makes it so legitimate as, as a storyteller thing where you don't feel like you're being preached to necessarily mm-hmm. because it all feels organic that this is the kind of stuff that this character would be talking about and thinking about. Yeah. And But it does really straddle the line between, wait, this was a survival book and now we're just talking about like the meaning of life. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's jarring, but it fits well with her state of mind. And, and it allows Russ to be able to make those points using the narrator as a platform. It's just a wonderful 118 pages of like this laser focus of accepting one's own death. Yeah, I love it. Like what they said, there's no shying away from it. Death is front and center in this book, and there's not necessarily fear involved in it, but there is inevitability. There's actually something about it that kind of reminds me of like that Douglas Adams spirit, where it's like, well, all right, I'm writing a science fiction book. Chapter one, the earth explodes. <laughs> Great. Uh, yeah, like, that's where our story really starts. Yeah, no, and it's, like, interesting, because it's, like, 90% of the time, it's like, I gotta get back to Earth, or, like, I have to save the Earth. Fuck it, Earth's not a thing anymore, what do you do now? Yeah, Whatever. I would definitely compare this and Hitchhiker's Guide, uh, both having that feeling of, like, you take away having a home to go back to, and what you're left with is who people basically are. Yeah, yeah. Who They are home at this point. Whoever they are is their home now. No, stuck on the heart of gold with crazy ex-president. Yeah, he he's just this guy. You John know? Uday John Uday wishes he was be Zaphod Beeplebrox. Yeah, well, I mean, everybody wishes they were Zaphod Beeplebrox, but yeah. that's beside the point. <laughs> uh, was it? Um, I have this um, note because because I got a fucking degree in languages, and goddamn it, I'll use them sometimes. <laughs> but the um, was it the title of the the book we heard about to is actually a uh, is a, a classical quote. It's from Suetonius's The Twelve Caesars, and it's uh, Ave Imperator. Mortui te salutans, which translates to uh, "Hail Emperor, we who are about those of us who are about to die, salute you." And it's like supposedly something that a bunch of gladiators said in the in the arena, addressing Claudius. Yeah, and and that's been addressed in quite a different bits of media too. That quote. Yeah, no, it's very, it's a very pervasive quote. It's one of the the weirdest things to stick with us from antiquity because I, I feel like people say we who are about to, and they don't really know the full implications of that. Yeah, but this book embodies the full implications of that. Yeah, you know, is it my? I was talking to my dad about this. He's like super into um, classic rock and not really into science fiction. So I'm like, yeah, we're doing a book. It's a we who are about to. He's like rock. Yep. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, dad, it's we who are about to rock. <laughs> Man, now I need to re-listen to this book with, like, a curated playlist history, and that's going to be number one. Oh, God, yeah. No, start out with, yeah, that. you got to get back in black there somewhere. Okay. Uh, we might need to do this. <laughs> you know what? That actually might be fun. Just, like, for each story we do, we should probably just start doing, like, a, a Spotify playlist. We should. That's a very good idea. I found... I was absolutely shocked at how many people were, like, inspired musically by uh, Bradbury. On our SoundCloud, I, re- I reblogged a bunch of the stuff. That's it's right. Like, yeah, there's... It, isn't it nice how much uh, rock and sci-fi do go together so well? Oh, my God. Just, like... It's like chocolate. I'm not even going to say it's like peanut butter and jelly. It's like fuck 
fucking chocolate and peanut butter. Oh, yes. Like, it's sinfully delect- delectable, and it's like... And David Bowie knew it. David Bowie knew it 100%. There's a reason Pink Floyd, like, they all their t-shirts say first band in space. Like, because rock stars are fucking cool, and they know space is cool. <laughs> yep, and that's why they know they're cool. Shall we do some quotes? Let's do it. Was it, uh, was it actually, I'm going to just read, because I like, we like doing openings, and I'm going to put this aside instead of our five, but... So if you read the title page and the first line of the story together, it creates a link between, like, it creates a full sentence. Or the, the title, We Who Are About To, About To Die, and so on. We're all going to die. The Sahara is in, the Sahara is your backyard. So is the Pacific Trench. Die there and you won't be lonely. On Earth, you're never more than 13,000 miles away from anywhere. Which, as the man said, is tough is a tough commute, but the rays of light from the scene of your death take little more than a tenth of a second to go anywhere. We're nowhere. We'll die alone. I love that quote and the fact that it follows the title because it, it instantly jumps us right in, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. the fact that this is all narrated on the recorder, the fact that the title said, and then immediately it mm-hmm. launches into the actual dialogue of the story. What a great way to start. It is, and it's actually like it's actually very classical as well, because it's like you know, there's the epic poem by Virgil the Aeneid. Like the the Romans didn't have uh, titles for poems. You just referred to a poem as the first line of the poem. The Aeneid would have been called by Romans the Arma Verum Vaecano, because it's the first lyric of that poem. But we who are about to die is the first lyric of this epic. First lyric, best lyric. First lyric, best lyric. She is a musician, so like... That fits... Yeah, it does fit pretty well. John Uday said, Come on now. Come on, dears. It's a tagged planet. It has to be. Too much coincidence otherwise, eh? The air, the gravity. Now if it's tagged, that means it's like Earth. And we know Earth. Most of us were born on it. So what's there to be afraid of, eh? We're just colonizing a little early, that's all. You wouldn't be afraid of Earth, would you? Oh, sure. Think of Earth. Kind old home. Think of the Arctic. Of Labrador. Of southern India in June. Think of smallpox and plague and earthquakes and ringworm and pit vipers. Think of a nice case of poison ivy all over, including your eyes. Status asthmaticus. Amoebic dysentery. The Minnesota pioneers who tied a rope from the house to the barn in winter because you could lose your way in a blizzard and die three feet from your house. Think, while you're at it, of tsunamis. Liver fluke. The Asian brown bear. Kind old home. The sweetheart. The darling place. Think of Death Valley in August. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> the, just because the planet is tagged, mm. that doesn't mean any. Yeah, that does not mean shit's going to go well for you. No, not at all. I mean, if, if you had a planet that had only one of Earth's deadly microclimates, <laughs> you would be in real trouble. Yeah, or just like, you know, <coughs> just some, ver- like, you know, I'm sure we have, I'm sure there's something here that's comparable to smallpox. <laughs> No, and it's like, I love that too, where it's like, oh, we'll be fine, it's just like Earth. Earth isn't that fucking safe either. Yeah, I mean, he's rationalizing, he's trying to make them all buy into the fantasy that they're, you know, the brave colonial explorers Mm. on a mission to save themselves and, you know, humans. No, and I think it has a wonderful ecological message to it as well, where it's, uh, a lot of people do have this eye towards terraforming, as it were, towards taking a, a, a land that's there and then reshaping it to suit your purpose. And I'm not saying that that's utterly a bad thing, like, because it is, it, it has been helpful. It's also not exactly been advantageous, you know, we've learned sometimes when it, when enough time passes. But I love that, that John Uday's immediate assumption that, well, no, it's it's great, it'll be just like Earth, and our narrator is, like, actually, a, like, a little too well-versed in Earth, 
like she knows it a little too well where it's like if you actually think about it you're any environment is like a little too immersive like you'll still have tsunamis so like i don't know why you're saying if you want to think about the parts yeah. of the earth that are actually habitable by people all year round mm-hmm. i mean you're not gonna hope that large portions of a planet are going to be like that just because they were earth-like yeah and on top of that it it sort of gives the illusion that oh well they were going to terraform here eventually we're just here a little early yeah you're here early in the part where people die Mm -hmm. if if they don't terraform the place yeah and that's like it's another thing we didn't i wanted to bring it up when we did our episode on bradbury but it kind of reminds me of this here is the um the history regarding the Roanoke colony. Yes. But yeah, like the yeah the the first colony being the one that's lost. That's not a new story. Like this is in a way sort of the intergalactic horror Roanoke story. Yeah. And I never thought about that because I was always comparing this to like. Oh fuck! And if it is a tagged planet, if someone shows up eventually. Yeah, all they're gonna find is her recording and a bunch of like skeletal corpses. Oh my god, no! Her like her dead body in a cave, the skeletal recording, and then six bodies strapped or seven bodies like strapped to or no, it's six, six bodies strapped to a broom flying around. <laughs> yeah, and uh, man, that that's what's so great about this story is like it's closed at the end of it. You do get closure, mm-hmm. but if this is like the Roanoke story, somebody else is going to come along and maybe the cycle continues. Yeah. No, and then that would be like a little too like Bradbury too. Where it's like, that would be very like you, you just keep becoming the Martians. Right. You know, how many other planets... What made these people crash here and is that this might happen again? Mm-hmm. And God, if you land on that planet having these same hopeful feelings with your own shipwreck crew, and then this is what you find what happened to the last group of people, at least maybe then you give up on hope a little faster. Just a little bit. I mean, or at least I'd like to think that, you know, we would be in the position of, hey, would you like to look out for the overlook during the winter? And it's like, well, what happened to the last guy? Died horribly. No, I don't need to travel that way. I'm good. Here's the new boss, same as the old boss. Ghost boss. Ghost Boss. Starring Kevin Bacon. <laughs> this fall. I would watch that movie. <laughs> I would watch that as well. <laughs> Alright, I said. Nathalie the leader. Wait till Alan finds out he can beat you up. Alright, so you think you have a chance, the, the chance of a snowball in hell? Maybe you do. But I think that some kinds of survival are damned idiotic. Do you want your children to live in the old Stone Age? Do you want them to forget how to read? Do you want them to lose their... Do you want to lose your teeth? Do you want your great grandchildren to die at thirty? That's obscene. Here, the ground came. Here, the ground came up and hit me as it always does. Does when you get carried away. It was Cassie standing over me, shouting, "Shut up! Shut up, you!" I don't think she hit me. Only pushed. I wasn't ready. That's all. Rabble rousing. That used to work. But that doesn't work now because it's the wrong rabble and the wrong rouse. Well, we all know that. And in everyone's face, the flash of realization: no law. Yeah, this right here is like the struggle for the first beginning of the book. It's like the narrator keeps trying to drive home to them the flaws in their logic and Mm. the situation that they're actually in. But when she flat out lays it out like, this is really what our situation is. It speaks volumes to just the human condition anyways, because it's like how many people would do this? Or it's like, I'm trying to tell you an inconvenient truth. Shut up, shut up, shut up. I can't hear you. Cassie doesn't want to hear this at all, neither do the rest of them. No. No, and it's like, and that's the thing that's the hardest thing to accept, is the thing that she knows inherently, is that there is no law. No, not at all. And, and uh, you know, it, it's why she always has to stay one step ahead of them and predict 
what their temperaments are going to be because she's seen this coming that society is breaking down. Which, and this is a thing, they don't really go into it in the book, or she doesn't really go into it in the book, but I I hold it in my mind. I think that's because she's uh, because she's like a uh, an apothecary, as it were, um, because she knows sort of what people need, like what they need, like what they either want to get high on or what would be useful for them. So she knows about their, their physical and their uh, euphoric needs, as it were. So I think that she is kind of weirdly good at reading people like that. She's very good at reading people, and I think that the only reason that she really gets pushed in this situation is, like she said, the wrong rabble, the wrong rouse. Mm. You know, sometimes we get upset in a situation where we know we shouldn't tell the whole truth. Mm-hmm. And we go a little far, and we say more than the whole truth. Mm-hmm. And it can damn us. Yeah. That's what our narrator finds out. Day five. We worked 18 hours, slept, worked again. Alan has reverted to the intensely polite, self-suppressing youth everyone knew and loved. My feet hurt. I tried to explain about orthopedic malfunctions, and I was told that I was malingering. Then my ankles swelled out most satisfactorily in the evening, looking distressingly like small cantaloupes. And everyone was most apologetic. I said, no, no, I had to carry my share. Then my ankles got even more so. Cassie washed them. The great nurse. Sexpot. Earth mother. We went to bed. She said, me. What? She. You ever had an orgasm? Me. Can't remember. She. Liar. I mean during fucking. I never did. Women are all liars about it, like Vicky Graham. She just pretends to show off, you know? Silence. She. Ever want babies? Me. I don't know. Sort of. Not really. She. I do. Silence. She. They don't let you if you're poor. But here. Me. I see. Well, good luck. How are you going to handle the men? She just laughed. Then she said with perfect certainty, those babies will love me, not their daddies. She nudged me. Hey, madhead, Uday and Graham are going to take your pills away from you in the morning. And who told them, you bloody traitor, said I. Shh. She looked around uneasily, then whispered, I did. She added, but I told you too, didn't I? I love this. This is, Mm. there's so many great conversations between the two, between Cassie and the narrator that sort of like swing between this idea of embracing life in a fantasy way and embracing certainty and death. I Mm. think this is one of the better passages that does that. No, I think you're right. No, it's, uh, Cassie is like super interesting to me. In, In fact, of all of the characters, if you could say that you like anyone in this, I mean, I like the narrator. I do too. She she's cold and scary sometimes, but I like her. The only other person who kind of approaches that is Cassie, but she's like she's, she's a foil. She is a foil. Yeah, she's like the exact opposite. Yeah, and it's what's really great is they both are very sold into whatever their own philosophy is, even though those philosophies are at odds with each other. But they still have this weird rapport. Mm-hmm. No, there's this there's this as, there's this attitude that she has where. Just like, how are you going to handle the men? It's like, I'm going to have the babies, and the babies are going to love me, not their dads. Right. And this is, of course, all assuming that she survives childbirth, and that her babies live, and that all of yeah. them live, and they don't die after five months of running out of food. Which, and this is the thing that, like, really got to me, and I, it's, we don't know much more about the world that they came from. We kind of know. We get these little hints. We get little hints. We know what everyone's, like, economic status is. We know that there's, like, a kind of an invasive government. Um, but this thing that, uh, Cass, that Cassie says, um, like, you know, she's like, you ever want babies? And the narrator's like, I don't know. And Cassie says, I do. They don't let you if you're poor, but here. Like, she wasn't allowed. This was her fantasy. Yeah. And that's, like, so sad to me that this is, like, like, this is a thing that you, that you could systematically oppress this woman so much, because it's like, they talk, 
the narrator talks about sort of her her messed up life and jumping from job to job and like having been a dancer like having been so many things but never being able to like stick like to make a good living at any one of them she was too poor and so poor that she couldn't have a kid and she had to get she had to get shipwrecked on a planet with a bunch of misogynist assholes to even have a baby and it's like it's turning like a thing that she would want into already just the grossest like consolation yeah and and you know it's it's actually another one of these tropes that i love is being sort of taken apart is is the idea of there's always one member of the shipwrecked crew who totally wants it their their old life Mm -hmm. was not what they wanted at all and this is their new chance for rebirth into who they were really supposed to be because now they have their own law and the truth is she couldn't be farther from the truth. She's not going to control anybody. She's going to mm. get subjugated. And they're all going to die anyway. Yeah. So it is really tragic that this was this specific tiny little circumstance is the only way she could have ever gotten her dream. And also it's never going to work out. Yeah. Now, and this is it, this is just going to sound strange, but like I like some people they say you can tell me anything a little too liberally, but I think that this is interesting that she decides to confide in one person about her stash, and that person immediately turns her over to everyone else, and she's like, Are "You fucking traitor! You told him." She's like, "Yeah, but I told you too." And that that is an attitude that some people have, where it's like, "I could play both sides." Like, oh, no doubt about it. She's. I think everybody who dies was willing to play the game, and that's yeah. what got them all killed. Oh God, yeah. Is is they were willing to take sides against the narrator, and no matter what side you ended up on, the narrator ended up being the one that was right. Yeah. No, it's we got. I love that. I can't wait till we get to that quote because it's just so good. I said, John, Don, John, John, with your britches on, John Whittington, turn again, Lord Mayor of London Town. We are dead. We died the minute we crashed. Plague, toxic food, deficiency diseases, broken bones, infection, gangrene, cold, heat, and just plain starvation. I'm just a trembler. My God, you're the ones who want to suffer. Conquer and control, conquer and control. When you haven't even got stone spears, you're dead. I just, uh, there's a lot of these passages which are sort of microcosms of all of the themes in the book smashed together. Yeah. And this was a really good example of that I love where you've got, our narrator is, she's cheeky, she's not completely humorless about the situation they're in. She just wishes that they would be too. Yeah. And... Well, and that's like, this is really weirdly, like, one of the things that makes Yoda wise to me is that he's funny. Exactly. I like, mean, God, imagine a dour Yoda. I, <laughs> I, I, that's an Empire Strikes Back I don't even want to think about. No, exactly. Like, no, and it's like, you know, John Dunn, John, John with the britches on. Like, she, yeah. She does, she makes so many, like, of these little, like, jokes. She does, and, and, you know, I think that that's, it's not completely lost on the rest of the people there, but to them it seems like she's taunting and antagonizing them, and it just makes yeah. them even more aggressive and angry towards her. Which is fascinating, because it's like, from her point of view, she's just being honest, and it's like, I love this thing that she brings up, where it's like, I'm just a trembler, like, I'm just someone who, like, believes, absolutely, not necessarily that there is a god, but that there is a right way to act, and she's like, She's like a super effective, affected, like, Marxist Christian type of thing, where it's like, and it's like, I don't even know if they really admit, like, they don't, she doesn't even really believe in an afterlife, but she's super religious. But she's like, I'm just a trembler. My God, you're the ones who want to suffer. Right. Conquer and control, conquer and control. You just want, like, yeah, it's like, you're, like, this col- this colonialism that you've decided to do to, like, extend your own life 
like is just going to make you suffer. Yeah, and she's willing to die for her faith, but their their faith is making them is making them put themselves in harm's way and and you know uh, suffer for no reason when they don't have to. And make her suffer, which is, I think, far more egregious in yeah. a way. Because it's like, she gave them several opportunities to let her go, to let her be. And she really wouldn't have come back and attacked them or anything. Far from it. She would have, She tried to get as far away from them as possible. But they want to keep her in there and the suffering with them. Yeah. That's a that's a big part of it. It is. And it's like, it's almost, it, it's a thing that really, like, kind of, like, fucks with me a little bit, is when I think of survival situations, there are some people who will just, like, deplete your resources and fuck you over. Um, I'm actually thinking about this, where it's, like, towards the end, like, you haven't even got stone spears, you're dead. Like, you think that you could do a number on this planet? You think that you could repopulate it? You're nothing. You're nothing. Like, and not only are you nothing, but it's, like, you don't even know about... I think there was even, like, a... I, I think we're going to come to it later. I think it's one of the quotes I picked out, but it's, like... Like, you don't even know the technology of the ship you were flying here on. No. Like, it was all very well hidden from you. You, the people on the deck class. So, like, basically these people have nothing. And once they crash land, there's one dude who, like... They have, like, one, like, storage box full of fresh water. And when she comes back, he's fucking bathing in it. Alan is. There's always one. There is. And it's, like, the only drinking water basically just has Alan's balls all up in it now. <laughs> and it's, like, these people, yeah, like, if that's how you're going to, if that's how you're going to react to being stranded, you they are just going to be dead. dead. Like, and it's, I love it. She just, like, took one look at that and was, like, yeah, we're all going to die. Like, it's. Yeah, she could tell pretty quickly, and I don't think we talked about this yet, but we talked about it a little before the recording. Um, everybody's roles before the ship crashed, when they had all of society behind them, they they kind of take that to the planet a little bit, but it's slowly shattered and destroyed. As an outsider, as a servant class, mm. as as somebody who's been downtrodden and, and her religion, the narrator isn't really changed. I think her, her beliefs are confirmed, if anything, from, from her landing there. Yeah. And and for the person with faith, she has the clearest view of what's going to happen of any of them. Yeah. No, I think the closest she ever really gets to changing is just that acknowledgement of, well, maybe I could have spoken to them in such a way where the violence wouldn't have been necessary, but that's I, not where we ended up. No. I, and it, it humanizes her that she laments that, but at the same time, I really don't see any other way that this would have gone out other than extending everybody else's suffering before they died. Yeah. So, um, everybody's, like, super insistent, uh, on this fucked up breeding program, and it's, it's already kind of obvious that, like, uh, the narrator is getting the shit end of the stick. There is one child with the group, Lori, who is, like, not very, she's not very well looked after by her parents. Her dad kind of, but, like, her mom is not really a very good mom. But she talks to this girl all the time, and, uh, like, she's already kind of being seen as, like, you know, like a, a nanny mother type deal, and now this is getting, like, sort of a little... It's starting to get a, it's starting to get a little handmaid's tale, but... And she wants to go, so she's just like, listen, I whispered, just managing to speak. I'll go away. Take the broomstick and send it back very slow so you can catch it. Go upstream, downstream, doesn't matter. Try the water, take no food, just leave me. No. Nathalie said, why? I coughed some more. If, you, if, you've got, if you've got to do it, I've got to do it, said Nathalie. You don't have to. And I cleared my throat at last. You better keep an eye on her, Nathalie said to John Uday. I think I put my head in my hands. Suppose they found my gun, my things. Wait long enough and it won't matter. Although I can always do it. Anyone can do it. Easy enough to kill if it doesn't matter about being found out. Then perhaps they'd kill me and it would be over. 
And that's all right, but I'm afraid of waiting too long, eroding, purpose all gone, slipping into no decision, no purpose, hard enough as it is, God knows. I think everyone loves it here because their choices are all made for them. We were never very comfortable with our fate in our own hands, were we? Better to act on modern, better to act on the modern religion, an incarnation of the immortal germplasm, nostalgia for the mud, simplicities. Yeah, uh, everybody feels brainwashed at this point. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Except for the narrator. And it's scary. Yeah. Well, no, and it's like, I love that thing. It's like, she even understands, like, everyone, I know, I know you love it here because your choices are already made for you. Like, there's a, there is actually, if, if you were to live on a planet with no law and everything you did did matter so fucking hard, yeah, it would be, it would be very hard to, to even function. And it's like, I love that she even brings up that where it's like the slipping into no decision, no purpose, where it's like, it would be easy to just do nothing. But she like, she's like, no, I'm actually not going to go along with you. And I'm not. And it's the, it's the stronger choice and it's the harder choice. It is. And it's like even harder because she's being ganged up on for it. (laughs) And I love that too, where it's like, she understands, she says straight up, it's like easy enough to kill. She knows where her gun is. Like she's, she's not so naive that she doesn't see what's happening. She's being very practical about it. She's stealing herself for it the whole time. Mm -hmm. By writ and tort, by hullabaloo and brouhaha, I declare this tape deck locked to all voice prints but mine. Locked RE playback, locked RE printout. And may God have mercy on your soul. I just, we talked about this before, but at this point in the book, her paranoia has reached its height. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, and she's not wrong. I mean, you know, they are all after her, but it's gotten so bad that she's locking her voice recording to herself. And and if you think about it, that's crazy. Like who, who's going to even care about her recording? Yeah. But it's the state of mind that they put her into. Well, no, and it's like, this is one of the, I read this actually is because you're right. Like what is, what does it really matter if they can get at her voice recorder or not? Like, I mean, I guess they could erase it, but it's like... But it's what it represents. It, yeah, no, but then, yeah, it's what it represents. But then there's also this deal, too, where it's like... Like, I read it sort of as this weird, I am now locking them out of this story. Like, basically, it's like she's she's taken the agency over the story yes. right now, and it's like it is literally just all hers, and it's like... And I'm lock, literally locking everyone else out of... This is her story. Command prompt, yeah. Yeah, and she's taken her agency back. They, No matter what they say she has to do, they can't control her insides yeah. or her internal world. Now, and speaking of calling strong women witches, this is the thing that I find interesting, is uh, she moves out of town on a broomstick and starts asserting her own agency, and they think she's crazy. I guess to some people that does look crazy. Yeah. But, it, like, yeah. It's, it looks crazy when it upsets the natural order. This is a conversation I used to have with people about um, Hamlet, about whether or not he was crazy, and I don't... I think even if he, even if his dad wasn't there and he was seeing him, I don't think that he's, I still don't think that he's crazy because sometimes an extreme reaction to that type of loss and trauma is a natural reaction. It is. It's like, oh my, oh, but it's just so, oh, to freak out and throw your arms. Yeah, go ahead and do that. If you, if you suffer something that is that bad. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, we, you know, the words of Norman Bates, we all go a little mad sometimes. Like, I'm not saying put on your mom's dress and, like, stab someone, but, like... Sometimes you gotta live your truth. You do. And it's like, sometimes your truth looks like screaming at things and, you know, being outcast. Yeah. And and she's... The life that she's already had has gotten her very ready for this role. Mm. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, she'd been arrested over and over again for, like, you know, her, like, social justice warrior stuff that she was doing, like, all of the protests. So it's like she had spent some time, like, behind bars just by nature of her religion and the protesting 
or in the, the the Protestant nature of it. Right, and the, it, it it's definitely this situation fits her worldview of what she can expect from life, from humanity, and from those around her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is after um, was it? So this is after uh, she's been hauled up in the the cave for a while. She she sneaks out, uh, steals the broom, and she's come upon by. Uh, her former roommates, as it were. Um, she shoots Johnny Day. Um, was it? And this is when uh, Cassie wanders into the cave. She remarked conversationally, "The prop person said you'd be up here. You know how long? You know, along the water somewhere. Frankly, you should have gone a lot farther away. A hell of a lot farther. That's what I would have done. I told them to let you alone. I said, Cassandra. She said, I know, I know." If I had a baby, it would die, and if it didn't, I would die. Anyway, my ma had me by cesarean. She said, I could tell you all about it. The kind of anesthetic, the scars, the stitches. God knows I heard about it enough. She laughed. Swaggering Cassandra, the beautiful waitress, born to be a star, born to be a loser. Doesn't know that hard births don't run in families. Not as simple as that. Oh, damn them, she said. Damn them. Don't they ever come back... Uh, don't they ever even come back to look? Yeah, and and you were talking to me before about this quote about uh, people not realizing that they've stumbled upon an inherent truth. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. No, that's like that's one of my favorite things in literature, and it's like you can only really do it in literature in a completely fakely constructed uh, situation. Can you engineer a character to encounter a series of events antithetical to their own personal philosophies? To say something and for it to accidentally be true, even though they're full of shit. Yeah, it's it's a perfectly designed moment. Yeah. Oh, is it? Uh, let me just do this one. Mm-hmm. Right next to my note, the one percent chimes in. So this is one of the um, one of the people, uh, Valeria Graham, who is um, she is the the wife of Victor and the mother of Lori, and she was incredibly rich on Earth, and that has allowed her to uh, have essentially anything that she wants. Her husband is a trophy husband. Her daughter essentially is almost the same thing. A bought bought daughter. Exactly. She like, she used all of this money to scientifically engineer like the means through which she can have this girl. And it really is just a fucking prop because she's like the uber capitalist of this story. Like, and I think that's interesting to have an uber capitalist character and that it's like, it's this woman. You show how much inherent, how much that means nothing. Once they actually crash and once money has no meaning anymore. Exactly. And, and, you know, you're left, she's left with the decisions she's made and it shows what kind of person she is. Yeah. Now, Valeria's an interesting character for that. Uh, Very. Is it, no one has listened to this woman for weeks. Uh, no one has listened to this woman for weeks. So that thing, so that thing on her hand is a compulsory ear. It means I must listen. And she likes that. She went on. How much money do I have? None now, of course. You don't even know, she said amused. Well, I'll tell you. Six mil a month, euro dollar. That puts me in the top one-tenth of the one, top one percentile, I believe. And I'm in the credit economy, too. I'm not a civilian, you know. Not legally. And with a credit level one, you can have anything you want in this world. Anything at all. This world? Goodness. Yeah, that's the narrator. Close? No. She went on. Food? Service? No. That's just ordinary life. You grubby little people think, Mrs. Graham is foolish, don't you? And maybe you think it's foolish and strange and rich to buy a man, and strange and foolish and rich to buy a child. But one gets sick of renting people, and even sicker of renting pets. It's dull. And I don't enjoy politics. And there's one thing about bought people, if you're wise, they stay bought. You can't have it both ways, but I can. The old and the new. Yeah, she's such a fascinating character to have in the story, especially 
actually uh, when compared to the narrator. Mm-hmm. Just like the narrator who is just so voluntarily impoverished. Yeah, exactly. And and I mean on the, in this world, they're equal. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, the narrator has more riches in the form of the, you know, the apothecary stuff and and the gun and the agency. Mm-hmm. And Mrs. Graham doesn't have that at all. No, she doesn't. And it's like I love this too where it's like she just does that or it's like do you know how much money I have? And the narrator doesn't answer her. It's just, uh, it's just like, it's just a outside of, uh, it's untagged speech. You know, she's recounting it, and it's like, do you know how much money I have? Not now, of course. Is it? I could buy anything in this world I want. This world? Question mark. Yeah, it's there's there's no call and response. The call and response is all mental. No, like, and, and both of them are kind of both having a mental conversation with each other. Yeah. No. Yeah. And that's actually interesting now that I. You're right, because it's like the narrator does this too, where it's like her conversations are predetermined. Also, she will just say, you know, her trembler thing, or like, you know, whatever, you know, nihilistic thing that she has inside. Right. So in a way, there's this there's this vast gulf between the two of them, even though they're communicating. That you know, maybe that neither of them even really want to like reach. Yeah. Well, no, actually, I want to read this real quick because I just it's so fucked up because it's like about her daughter. I didn't buy Lori for myself, you know. I thought it would be. I thought I. I thought I would, but it didn't work out like that. She was an awful sick little thing. She needed money like mine. That's why I chose her. Well, one reason. Do you know how many operations that child had? She was hooked up to a kidney machine when I first saw her, and she needed a heart implant and dozens of things. This is kind of weird because it's like this is kind of a little like Munchausen by proxy to me. Like that whole. I like, definitely get that. So it's like, you know, she's fucking hell. It's like, no, I, I intentionally bought the sickest child because I wanted everyone to know how much money I have and what a caring mother I am. Yeah. What it, it The choices she makes considering that she could have literally anything, it's very telling about what she's actually like. Yeah. Um, my quote is... Uh, it's it's after everybody is dead, pretty much. Yeah. Right? I, I think it... Uh, is Lori dead at this point, too? Yes. On the way up, I saw lying among the bushes Cassie's white peplum. I think Cassie was inside it. Oh, yes, I forgot to tell you. I know she was. I saw her. Wanted to circle around her and didn't. She was lying on her back, limbs a little sprawled, staring at the sun, and something uncharacteristic in the air, for there are few breezes here, was moving some strands of her hair up and forward over her face, up and forward, over and over again. I've seen people who died using that stuff. They usually lie down and are happy long before the end. I wonder what would have happened to her if... Please, I'd like to take another flight. This one doesn't fit my tour. Can I have another flight? I want to get my hair done at the hotel. Alan Bobby has gone to see the world. Laurie's playing cards in heaven. I'm not alone yet. But when the broom wears out and crashes, where? When he falls off. When the bodies rot with their own internal bacteria. When they're all gone. When Laurie is dust and Valeria earth. When Alan Bobby molders and sinks into some other continent. When Nathalie and John are bones in water and then air and then nothing. Then I'll be alone. When Cassie is only a white flag, a shred of artificial silk, bits of sheeting abraded to powder and sunk into the ground, a few fibers slowly settling into the ground around the roots of plants, then I'll be alone. I'm alone. This this section was very affecting to me because, Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, we'd gotten a lot of violence and contemplation of death up until that point, but this passage was savage to me. Yeah. It's it's upsetting, you know, she's... She's thinking about how how things could have been, how things could be differently. And, you know, uh, there's another passage we talked about before where she's like, maybe I didn't need to do this. Maybe this wasn't the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. But those are all what-ifs and could-bes and should-haves 
Yeah. And they're not the way it plays out. And then this is like, this is another wonderfully toxic if where it's like the one that's dropped where it's like if, and it's, I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's really specified whether it's Cassie or the narrator that's supposed to be um, um, indicated in the italics. But it's like, what would have happened if, please, I'd like another flight. Like that bit where it's like, and that's a thing that people think about too. Like where it's like, if only I hadn't caught that train or. Oh, there's tons of stories like that. All for everybody's got a story like that. And you know, the truth is, is like, that's never really relevant, but it's when you've got nothing but time to think about it, of course, that's where your mind's going to go. Is it? I feel like uh, the narrator is very, like, she's very interesting to me with this language of um, immersion where like, it kind of reminds me of we had to go through so much of dark they were in golden eyed before we got to this kind of like environmental immersive language right um she kind of drops us in it where it's like she talks about earth and it's like you ever fallen into poison ivy like she talks about or like frozen to death walk trying to walk back from an outhouse it's like the encroachment of the environment upon you that is just so constant that you can't but succumb to it like it's always going to be a condition of your existence and for this condition of her existence for this condition of all of their existences where it's like when she straps them all to the broom and just sets it to go which i think is just a fascinating way to do it where it's like you just strap a bunch of dead bodies to this hover device and just let it fly around the planet i know it's a pretty great sight it is like, and it's like if we, if I kind of hope at some point someone makes this into a movie because like I kind of want to see how that would, how that scene would play out. Right? Can you can imagine the 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 end of the movie just hearing like the tiny little bumps of it hitting something and traveling around slowly, yeah. making that noise. If we wanted to make it funny, like it would just every so often she would just be in a new place and it's like. Mm. And it would pass by. <laughs> I mean, it would be a great way to show the passage of time, especially when the recordings start to get farther and farther out, or at least mm-hmm. we lose the sense of passage of time. Yeah. We do know that she said seasons pass. Yeah. So you could definitely do a montage showing every once in a while when she's thinking about something, it's punctuated by that flying by. Yep. No, and it's like, and all of their bodies, like the way that she talks about them, just becoming, like, you know, Uday seeking into continents, and when Cassie is only a white flag, like, because it's what she's wearing, like, or it's fucking... It's so, like... It's beautiful language, but it is, like, you're right, like, really frightening, because it's like, is that all we are, just the traces we leave? Yeah, and, and, you know, I didn't feel like this completely, but I feel like in certain moments you could kind of feel like her losing, slipping her loss on humanity a little bit, Mm -hmm. and then sort of gaining it back in these moments of being reminded about the other people that were there. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. Was it? So this is after she's been living in the cave for a minute, and she starts um, she starts hallucinating her old friend LB, who um, I guess sort of like got her into the uh, the Travelers, right? Or who she or who she met through them. It's boring, so boring. Pebble three. I'll tell you about the Neo Christians. They're nobody. It was just an intellectual fad. We used to meet in somebody's attic in graduate school. I was 30, LB was 35, until a media rep got a hold of it, and then, all of a sudden, we were neo-Christians everywhere. Like, like Amanita, like Amanita mushrooms. That's when I quit. Who wants to sit in an attic and argue about Descartes anyway? It was only stealing ideas, but I suppose it'll go into the history books as eclectic. History is all fantasy. It's boring. Starving is boring. I just went over everything. I dictated to the vocorder. Then I decided to leave it as it was. What's the use of listening? All you hear is your own voice. I had to rig up the machine to wake me in the middle of the night and whisper something shocking like, we're going to get you. In my voice, of course. What if I had the tools? 
It's a great insight into her, huh? Yeah. Which, I love that, I love that quote, because it's like, honestly, this is the thing that I try to fight in my own life, like, so much, is just, like, nihilism, or, like, weirdly genocidal thoughts. Yep. Like, when I think, like, oh, we're just horrible, we should, the world would be much better off without humans, but then I think, oh, wow, that was a genocidal thought, wasn't it? Maybe I should check that. But there's some, like, there's, there's some charm into it, in a, in that kind of genocidal thought, in, like, the you know, well, then I know what the real problem is. Like, humanity is the real problem, but that's not There is an appeal to being able to blanket say that humanity is the problem, but as we've seen in this, it's much more nuanced than that. Mm-hmm. The problems come from within as well as without. That's true, and it's like a thing where it's like, Lori didn't deserve it. Like, no, Lori didn't deserve any part of the trajectory that she has in her entire life. No, and it's just it's just so fucking sad that she had the misfortune of being ship or being shipwrecked on this planet with these people. Yep. And having the parents that she did who didn't who never taught her to value anything. Anything. The enormous building I spoke in, or almost or almost got killed in. The interior carpet sprayed and wall flocked in a certain extremely limited range of bright stylized colors. Everything flat and dry to the touch, neither cold nor hot. And you can't smell anything except the carpets if they're new, or maybe the disinfectants blown through the air ducts at night. Brochures often describe the hologram numerals hanging in front of the doors in such buildings as softly glowing, which means they're in the same range of colors as everything else, but the hail is dimmed a little so you can see them. And they carry the intangibleness and non-tactility of the place to the point of driving you gaga. Books say it. Actors on TV say it. Everyone says it except people. Yet the style of architecture is a good 80 years old. We are trapped in somebody's old dreams of utopia. Trapped outside what's really new. Modern Baroque is new. Think of those non-civilian buildings we know about. Great opal-streaked globes, each with its own separate stem. Those 64 square chessboards you find in Iowa, each grid half a mile on a side. Spaghetti clusters of transparent tubing for private homes, or the same stuff 20 times as big. Built over rivers or waterfalls for factories. Nobody keeps us out. Nobody forbids us. You can even go in and get yourself a tour, only you'll never learn enough to go home and reproduce it yourself, if you had the tools, which you don't. My god, how naive we were. If somebody tried to bust us up, we must have been going in the right direction. I mean pops. The pops, of course, not the other. And I knew it. And the media never even touching us. I just wanted to read that section because we get little hints about what this future is like and where these people come from and and who the narrator is. Mm -hmm. And I thought this section just gives you so much. You get, um, you know, the narrator's outlook on this future that she lives in. You sort of get this kind of Blade Runner-esque kind of old, new future that everyone's sort of decaying and living in. Yeah. Um... And, and, you know, you kind of get a sense of what she and her movement were kind of about as well. Yeah. No, there's, like, there's a, a, a such a sadness to it. And it's, like, I know it's, like, I know it's a statement about architecture, but it's just, like, this thing is... I love this line. We were trapped in somebody's old dreams of utopia, trapped outside what's really new. Right. And isn't that the... That's, that's the whole book. Yeah. I mean, they're trapped on this planet, but they're also trapped within the ideas of the previous civilization that they came from and and what they're supposed to be doing other than just living and dying. Yeah. No, if there was some utopia that could have been had on this planet, which the narrator... Like, I mean, maybe her version of utopia could have been a place where she could just die in peace, where she could just come to terms with that reality for herself, like, without having to worry about all this other bullshit. But, of course, everyone else had old dreams of utopia. Right, and she's just living in it. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, and it's like, that's, 
Was it? I love that. If somebody tried to bust us up, we must have been going the right direction. Where it's like her life in activism was very much like reacting to reaction. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what she kind of defined herself as: as the outsider, as the trembler. She never had the same viewpoint as other people because she was always inherently outside of it. Yeah, and it's. I wonder too, where it's like, because it's like I admire this character a great deal, even when she's like. Even when she's fucked up, like, I, there's a part of me that, like, gets it. It's very, rela- she's very relatable. Yeah. It's like, even, like, her, even her, like, rap is relatable. Oh, absolutely. It's not, it's not out of nowhere. I think it's, it, at least in terms of the story, it's earned. Was it, just real quick, this is, uh, in reaction to your line, it's, um, on 85, it's, it's a bore, a dreadful bore being outside history. Yep. When she gets to the point where she's starting to, like, severely hallucinate um, scenarios that aren't happening, uh, there's this one that she gets of, um, she hallucinates, uh, or, like, the hallucination of being rescued. All right, Stevie, we won't do it. And give a shot to him. He opened his eyes and cried. All right, do it. Do it. Do it now. The number of old hands I've, I've held saying, dying is a task. One would answer, come and join me then. Hello. Hello, old wit. It never moves in stranger ways than when it moves inside us. There will be hallucinations about being rescued, I know, croaking thinly. No, let me die. With immense dignity, of course. And I'm carried away, and I'm carried out to the shuttlecraft by great, coarse, strong, disgustingly healthy people in uniforms with thick necks. Actually, it would be a little awkward trying to explain what happened to the others. You killed them? Why? They were trying to kill me. Why? To prevent me. From doing what? Dying. And, and I love that because in a different novel, one that wasn't maybe uh, subverting some of these ideas, that would be the ending of the story. No, no tongue in cheek at all. That is it. That like that is the that's almost the fucking end of uh, um, William Golding's Lord of the Flies. Yeah. yeah, where it's like, oh, isn't it great that order is restored? That someone has come here and that like should even though that ending is problematic because it's like the children are rescued from people who are fighting another war. Right. So it's like, it's not like they're being taken out of a society of violence. It's more like their violence is a microcosm. But no, like this one is just like, you know, even the whole notion of being rescued, she's, I love it because it's like Russ has read that book and it's just like, oh yeah, but you know, no. No, but that's not happening. Yeah. And and, and even the narrator is very self-aware of that because of Russ knowing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really like that. But it's like, and it's like one of those things where it's like, I almost feel like it's like, it's like a fucking Buddhist thought exercise almost. Why did you kill them? They were trying to kill me. Why are they trying to kill you? To prevent me from doing what? From dying. Like, it's that, it's almost like, a, it's almost a sentence like literarily that's like, like, did you ever read Beloved? There's a line in Beloved where she's talking about, um, it's about a woman who murders her daughter, um, who like, you know, sort of in an impassioned fit murders her daughter so that she can keep her daughter from being passed back to her old master in the South so that she would be a slave. So she's, you know, the old master comes to her, her farm in the North to try and like steal her back, um, take her out of Ohio, like her and her kids. And she freaks out, takes her kids into a barn, and manages to saw through the neck of her youngest daughter. And she was going to do it to the others until, like, you know, she was stopped. But her only her only response when people asked her why is, like, if I hadn't killed her, she would have died. A mercy. Yeah. And it's, like, it's kind of... I feel like that that kind of same language is at play here, that same, like, weird philosophical problem. Right. Because, I mean, the truth is, is, you know, if, if all of that came to pass... 
and they were like, why were why did you have to kill them? Well, because they were insane and were trying to rape me. Yeah. It's like, yeah, that I get. That's, that's a better answer than... But she simplifies it down to what matters most to her, how she mm-hmm. sees the situation. And it is it does have a poetic simplicity to it. Yeah. Even behind the mask of John Uday must have been something human, though, if you will pardon my cynicism, I doubt it, having had far too much to do with that type before. But Cassie, the point is, when I cross over, will I only meet Victor? And do people who have died, and do people who have died naturally, as we call it, go somewhere different or cross over in some different way than those who have died by violence? This is physically and metaphysically silly, the whole damn subject. But it still does seem to have preoccupied people. Different heavens in Scandinavian mythology, different hells in Dante. No heaven at all for the Greeks. Ghosts stuck in the place they got strangled and so forth. If those seven and I ever get together, the only thing they'll want to do to me will be to kill me. And that will be rather difficult under the circumstances. Eternity with Victor. I can do worse. But Cassie. I I know I'm romanticizing something about my own life. Or something that isn't in my own life. We always make such distinctions between those of us who are us and those of us who are tables and chairs. And then some tables turn up and and then some table turns up and thinks at you, criticizes you, talks to you, looks down on you, likes you. Little 12-year-old girls walking around with a billion dollars of improvements inside them. Like dolls with tape decks and a slot in the back. I love that. I know. it's The imagery is so good, especially the dolls with tape decks and a slot in the back. I know. That totally, like, I just have, like, Lil' Lori, the Teddy Ruxpin, just right next to it. Like, and it's 1976, so this totally prefigures Teddy Ruxpin. Pretty close. Was it? This is, it's one of the things that I think is super fascinating is this statement. Uh, we always make such distinctions between those of us who are us and those of us who are tables and chairs. And then some table turns up and thinks at you. But it's like, I love that. It's one of the biggest problems I feel like humanity has is, like, this sort of us-them mentality. Like and objectification, this... yeah. Exactly, and it's like, yeah, and it's like to actually turn people with your gaze into instruments. Like they did. Like, they looked at her and they saw a vessel. Like, or they thought, oh, she has medicine. I, we could take that from her. Like, they didn't look to her for any of the good contributions that she could make or even really ask her to be part of building anything new. Not once. No, they just basically said, well, you're here. We have a right to your body, so we're going to take that. And how unsettling it is to have, you know, something that you regard as being an object think at you. I love that. I love that sentence, to think at you. Yeah. Like, it, it's an act. Like it's active. Like... <laughs> It, 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 it's at odds with the table imagery because we don't expect the table to talk mm-hmm. or think at us, but it does really symbolize the way they see her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, just essentially is use value, you know, and was it the other use value? Like, that's the way that we end that is the, uh, with that simile, comparing Lori to a doll with a tape deck in the back. Like, basically all of this money pumped into a person to turn it into the latest thing. Latest and greatest. This is more of her, of the narrator, uh, musing about her life and, and, and as, as her life comes to an end, thinking about what was important to her. And she's talking about LB. I remember the third time we made love and how I decided it must be so very different because the room was different. Or I was just precisely drunk enough, though I wasn't drunk at all. Or had eaten for once exactly the proper kind of dinner. He said it was because we had the contratuba in the room with us, and that the contratuba, alone among all the instruments of the orchestra, had a soul. My memory of him is built up of many, many times after this, all made into one. Just like the year I was speaking for the populars. And in just the same way, an intelligent, ruthless abstract 
abstraction of what mattered, details plucked unhesitatingly from the real, unstable times and places, and put together into a meaning, a meaning, a mosaic, a symbol, an icon. Because that's what mattered, and that's how it mattered. And because I knew more than I ever have before since just what mattered and what meaning was. Meaning preserves things by isolating them, by taking them beyond themselves, making them transcendent, revealing their real insights by pointing beyond them. If we perceived everything, we would know nothing. There would be no pattern. I love this. Uh, it, mm. I know I've said this before, but there's these passages where she has these sort of uh, summing up of all of the thoughts in this book. And it's such a dense read for a short story, mm-hmm. and there's so much going on in it, but... But each of these little passages, these little monologues, are able to put all the themes together and match them up. And I love the idea of of finding meaning uh, and everything boiling down until all that's left is the important parts, the important things that matter to you and what they mean to you. Yeah. Well, no, and there's like, and this is a thing that I think is interesting because it's like, I'm, I've been thinking a lot about sort of like duality and perverse dark sides lately. Um, but this is one of the ones that I find so interesting about like, uh, this one is like, you know, it's sort of the, like, I feel like it's a, an important part of this novel for the narrator. And I think for the reader as well is to understand a meaningful death or like to understand how to approach death in a meaningful manner. And was it this one line where it's like meaning, pres- uh, meaning preserves things by isolating them, by taking them beyond themselves, making them transcendent, revealing their real insides. But it's like, I've, I love that idea where it's like, and it's also like kind of perverse too, where it's like, how do you make something mean something? Well, you have to isolate it. You have to take it out of the norm. You have to make it more than right. itself, which is weird because things are more than themselves, right? No. Like, it, and, and it's almost suggesting like she's being tumbled into some sort of precious gem or something like that by this mm-hmm. experience by being isolated as well. Yeah. It's it's kind of hinting at that and, and it's definitely, it's got a finality to it as well. Yeah, so this is one of my favorite bits. She's she's been talking to uh, her ex boyfriend LB or his ghost, and um, he uh, he her hallucinations start turning on her. Like you know, at first they were like you know sort of lovely, but then they get then you know it's sort of like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory through that crazy tunnel where all of a sudden candy gives way to nightmares. He says, "Oh my dear, you've committed murder. Go away." I said it again, totally shocked. Go away. But my dear, how can I love you if you've committed murder? I started to cry. Yes, I said. All right, you Christian. Don't, I added. You know it was self-defense. He merely looked at me. Of course it was. Of course it was, I said. Of course it was. Of course it was, I said. You saw it. I mean, if you're made of ectoplasm and all. I mean, running into the brush, yelling colonize, colonize and all that. They were going to force me to have babies. I was going to be tied to a tree and raped for goodness sakes. It was a mass delusional system. LB, you know what they're like. And anybody who doesn't agree has to be shut up somehow because it's too terrifying. So I ran away. But they wouldn't let it be. They came back after me to drag me back into that insanity, and I killed them. I had to. I kept telling them, I kept telling them we were all dead, you know? I I kept telling them we were all dead, you know that. And we were. I I bet they had a lot more fun chasing me than they would have had by dying slowly in a few months. It gave them something to do. And I might remind you, old buddy, that several of those nice people were trying to kill me. Murderer, he said. I started crying again. I said, you get out of here, you father. You just get out of here. This is not your cave, so you just haul ass. He said thoughtfully, murder, pure murder. Don't you think? And for no reason, just because these people annoyed you. You assumed, of course, they ought to adapt to you. Never occurred to you that you ought to adapt to them. You simply didn't like them. I couldn't talk. He said, out of spite, really. 
I think. Don't you? The hidden wish. Anger. The chance to do what you always really wanted to do. I think what you always wanted, under the camaraderie, under the sociability, was the chance to be really and truly alone. Autocratically alone, one might say. Arrogantly alone. Probably the only person in history to depopulate an entire planet so easily. Pocket genocide, one might call it. And for spite, for sheer nastiness and bad feeling, and for no other reason. So I can hardly love you now, can I? Yeah, this passage destroyed me. Me too. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's pretty hard. It was hard to read, and it was hard to listen to you read. Uh, I mean, it, it is shocking. You know, uh, I agree with everything that she said, but, you know, her her angels on her shoulder have come to, to remind her of what she's really thinking and what she's trying to push away. Yeah. No, and this is, like, her, like, temptation, as it were, where it's, like, and I love that she even has her, like, get thee behind me Satan moment, where she's, like, you know, haul ass, I don't want to talk to you if you're just going to be like this. But, no, like, this whole thing where it's, like, um... How can I love you? Yeah. You're a murderer. And it's, like, I, and, yeah, it's it's so crazy to me, because I spent so much time in this novel just being on her side. Right. Essentially just being, like, it's completely unfair what they're doing to her. It's, you know, incredibly backwards the way that they've set up their whole little shit. And then... And then genocide comes up, and it's like, you know, you just you just kill them. Like, you know, just because they annoyed you. And I think that that's interesting, where it's like, you know, maybe we only work together as well with some people as we want to. Yeah, and on top of that, I think that uh, bringing up the idea that maybe this is exactly what she wanted all along, we talked before about, you know, some people coming to this planet, it was sort of their perverse way of, of the monkey's paw of getting their dream to come true. Yeah. And he's suggesting through her subconscious in a way that this is what she wanted all along, was to be a self-employed ruler of none. Yeah. No, is it? And I love that, like, autocratically alone, where it's like, and it's weird because that should be, that should be nonsensical, but like, given the story we just read, it makes absolute sense. She's like tyrannical about her solitude in a way. And I've never considered that, like, that someone could possibly be tyrannical about solitude. It's what's so effective about the fact that this is her recording, mm-hmm. uh, is like, of course we're going to inherently be on her side. We've been hearing this from her side the entire time. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no, and it's like, I love this thing that she says where it's like, you know, you heard them. You heard what they were colonized, colonized. They were going to rape me. You know, they were going to do all this stuff. And she says, was it, was it, it was a mass delusional system, LB, you know what they're like, and anyone who doesn't agree has to be shut up somehow because it's too terrifying. So I ran away. Like, no, but it's like that, that thing where it's like, yeah, they couldn't handle, like, someone speaking truth at them. Like, you know, they couldn't handle someone actually telling them that they were going to die and probably very soon. But then it also... They certainly couldn't handle handle her having those opinions and going off somewhere where they couldn't control her having them. They couldn't, but there's almost this weird flip side to it where it's like, we know that she's totally right, but it's like, to them, did she seem crazy? Like, this lady who's just, like, walking around with, like, her drugs and is just like, you know, we're all just gonna die, right? It's all bullshit. An ex-cult lady with a gun and drugs who's telling Mm -hmm. everybody they need to give up hope and die, but also they have to stop her from, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, from from letting her kill herself. And it's like, yeah, totally. From their point of view and from the society they come from, I absolutely would think of her as the bad guy right from the beginning, or at least a threat. Yeah. What could I have done? Should have, couldn't. Should have thought, really. Really arrogant. Solitary. Secretly cruel. I am. I am. I used to say to myself, who isn't? Who isn't? But it isn't true. I've been unhumanly hungry and starved for years. As nasty as that starved rat, a cannibal, which they wouldn't be, which they wouldn't be persuaded, and glad they weren't. Give it a good end. Go out in a great big bang, 
and to stupid parties after lectures, people I don't know, people I wanted to kick, trying to live without roots like an airplane, endless traveling with idiots, trying to pretend they're bright when I'd like to hit them, and I like them when I don't, and it doesn't matter when I when it does, and I ought to love that hateful, ghastly bunch of, oh lord, what was I doing there anyhow? I rather enjoyed killing them off than I don't care, except Cassie. Alan Bobby hit the head, Alan Bobby hit in the head with a rock, good for him. Nathalie, shot, good for her. John Uday, shot, good. Lori, fine. Val, best of all, goody, good, good for them. It's a game they understood inside out, and once I started playing, I rather liked it because I'm not exactly an amateur either, you understand. And it's all yummy self-assertion, all big adventure. It isn't it? Oh my. Creeping about the cane break and under our in in our under drawers, trying to pot each other. No, I had to. I really had to. But all the same, I did. What? Pocket genocide? I guess so. Up to the elbow in blood. Poetry. And now I have to live with this awful, awful woman. This dreadful, wretched, miserable woman until she dies. Yeah. I fucking love that. It's dark. She like she admits it. She she likes like look. I guess there is like there was a dark thing there. There was a darkness, and I embrace it. I got a little carried away, and it's like you know she's not like and I love it too. Where it's like it's that sort of like if you think if you think yourself uh, to be sort of a good person, you know, uh, set against uh, like horrible people, like. It can be really easy to be like, look, I didn't want to play this game. You all brought me into it. But it's like, but then I hoped you wouldn't change. Yeah, I mean, you know, sure, I'll, I'll do these things because you made me do it. But I'm glad you made me. Yeah. No, and once I'm in, I will enjoy it. And it's like, it's one of those things where it's like, I don't think it's necessarily madness because it's like an interesting tug of war that we're seeing between these two. Like sort of the, you know, I should have cared for this bunch and like the, the remorse she expresses at the end versus I'm glad they didn't want. I'm glad they didn't listen to reason. Yeah, and I mean, I know that maybe not, uh, at least I hope not as extreme as this story, but we've all been there where we were pushed to something that instinctively inside we were hoping to be pushed to, and when we were pushed, we let it all go out. Mm-hmm. And we gave into it completely. Yeah. I think we can all relate to going to that place. I think we can too. Man, wow. so that's our first novel. As a good story, I come away, I feel shocked. Uh, I feel like someone splashed me with cold water. And uh, a lot of the feelings that I felt reading this have all come back up again. Uh, you know, there were a lot of moments I wanted to cry in this book. It was, it was quick, it was short, and it was brutal. Mm. But it was also metaphysical, and it pondered a lot of different things about human nature. I really loved it, and, and definitely mm. a very strong feminist work. Yeah. No, she's she's phenomenal. Like, we should do some more drama on Russ later. I 100% agree. We should definitely do more Russ. Um, yeah, no, I'm super, like, in this, it's, this novel gave me a lot to meditate on, and of, of the few things, sort of, like, we were talking about, where it's, like, I'm, I'm being more critical, critical of genocidal thoughts that I have, as it were, just, like, whenever I think the world would be better off without humans, I just immediately nip that in the bud, and we'll, like, try and think of something a little, and not necessarily more positive, but something that's not nihilist. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's a lot of steps between an nihilist and optimist that you can, you can take without having to jump all the way into the deep end of either side. Exactly. No, it's, I've been meditating on that a lot and just also like, you know, the place of resistance, um, because I think that that is an incredibly, um, an incredibly powerful aspect of this book is, you know, how even in a government of eight, you know, you still have to form your own resistance. 
Yeah, and, and you know, if, if you really want to be your truth, sometimes that means being on the outside. Even when you have a whole new situation and a whole new government set up, you still find yourself on the outside if that's where you need to be. Exactly. And it's like there's, uh, was it, if you ever get a chance, there's this book by Giorgio Agamben. It's, um, it's called Homo Sacer. But it's basically just all about that, sort of like this, um, the philosophical and ontological implications of being outside of society or being marked to be outside of society. It's very, it's a very good uh, I will have to read word. that. Speaking of which, uh, should, did you want to talk about anything else or you want to do related reading? I do. Um, all right. Let's uh, jump right in. Let's jump right in. Uh, do you want to go first? Do you want sure, to go? I'll go first. I think that there's a theme among all the things I chose, and I'll just list first and then we can go into that. Um mm-hmm. For movies, I chose uh, Castaway, 2000 Robert Zemecki film. Nice. With Tom Cruise, yep. Um, Swiss... Tom Hanks. Did I say Tom Cruise? You did say Tom Strike Cruise. it from the record. <laughs> Ouch. We'll edit it out in post. I mean, that sounds like a fascinating movie, don't get me wrong, but yeah, Tom, Tom Cruise, sure. Tom Hanks. Um, Swiss Army Man, 2016 comedy film with Daniel Radcliffe and Paul Dano. And uh, Battle Royale. Nice. Yeah. And, and I mean, the reason I chose all of those is pretty obvious, is, is that uh, all of those movies are about, in one way or another, people who are stranded in some way from society or, or and are, are pushed into conflict with survival and with themselves. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, they're all tonally very different, especially uh, if you're going to compare Castaway and Swiss Army Man as being a similar subject. One of those is just a straight-up, like, watching a man survive and go through the ordeal and so Army man sort of takes a more comedic kind of like finding happiness within madness after you give up on society mm-hmm. so i i like the way those two go together and then battle royale fits in with my book choice which is lord of the flies nice i think the, you you really can't be talking about any of these without talking about those two together no you totally can't and then i just wanted to add survivor by chuck Palahniuk because that's about uh, a character who is out of a cult, is religious, and who finds himself uh, on the outside of everything and, and possibly about to commit large-scale murder. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then on, on, after all of those, also to fit into kind of the Robinson Crusoe uh, story, I wanted to do J.G. Ballard's Concrete Island story. Hmm. Um, the story's protagonist, Robert Maitland, a wealthy architect, finds himself stranded on an artificial island. Now, it is science fiction, but just barely, because it basically, it, it takes our idea of these long stretches of highway with nothing underneath them other than, like, docks or old warehouses, and extends it even further to say that there's nothing but freeway uh, overpasses, and that if you fall off one of those, you're basically off the map of society. And so even though our main character, a wealthy architect, has everything he thinks he needs, one car crash leads him to realize that he's just about as far from civilization as you can possibly be while being right next to it. That's crazy. Yeah, so I mean... What was that one called again? Concrete Island. And I'm going to check that out. That sounds really super good. It's very good. I, I, I probably read that every three or four years just to kind of remind myself about, you know... What we take for granted about how far away civilization can seem once you lose any or all of the pieces of it. Yeah. Oh, good choices, dude. Those are my recommendations. Was it, um, I don't have that many. I got a couple. Was it, um, I'd say at first I'd give, um, a soft to moderate, uh, recommendation for Paul Thoreau's novel, The Mosquito Coast, which is also a film starring Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren. Uh, film adaptation is pretty good. River Phoenix is in it also. 
little, little baby river phoenix. Oh, I'm gonna have to watch this. It, it was actually a pretty good movie because it's like in, um, the basic plot of it is there's this guy who's like he's an inventor and uh, he like has all of these like really like he's like a super leftist and have all has all these views about America in the 80s about how it's like just consumer crazy run amok and like you know that we're just destroying the environment. It's all fucking true. Like that's the thing that's even worse. But like he's such like an alarmist that he just decided he's going to take his family and move to Honduras and just, like, live in the jungle and be, like, completely self-sufficient with, like, zero carbon imprint and, like, completely free of society. Unfortunately, people live in Honduras. You know, so, like, yeah, basically he he tries to live this, like, very, like, staunch, like, ascetic life and is constantly being uh, assailed by missionaries from one end or like pirates or like asked like you know people just trying to take a shit and it's like as it goes on um almost everything he attempts scars the environment even worse so it's like you know he's he's very much like i feel like if the the debate at the end of the book that she has with her her ghost ex-boyfriend i feel like that's most of this book is like the you know, I just wanted everything to be good, and it's like, you also did horrible things to do that. Like, So, that's a good one. Um, I would give uh, a recommend to the video game, uh, The Last of Us. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, you, you, I'm not going to ruin it for you, or, you know, listening to a science fiction podcast, you, you played it. You know you played it. You know you did. But no, it's it's the the same impossible choice that you get at the end, where it's like you know, do I like what's more important to me? Like do like do I kill to preserve liberty type of deal, even if it means that the human race dies out as a result. What is freedom and what is survival? Exactly. So uh, was it those two? And uh, my final recommendation would be uh, um, Joss Whedon's The Cabin in the Woods. Yes. And mainly for the end, if you haven't. Don't listen to this if you haven't seen it or uh, you don't want spoilers, but in the end, basically, we find out that humanity is keeping elder gods at bay with a very specific set of sacrifices of certain people. And at the end, there's this woman and her friend, and she turns on him. Basically, she has they have uh, an instant where they can stop the end of the world by sacrificing their best friend, and they actually just decide that it's not worth it. Like, that if you have to kill one innocent person, they would just rather bring on the Elder Gods. Right. And, it, uh, God, I love that choice that they have to make. Yeah. It's like the choice between making a difference and stopping all of this killing for nothing or ending the whole cycle and just letting it be. Mm-hmm. And they do that while smoking a joint. While smoking a joint. It's just such a, a good perfect movie. ending to a movie. No, Sigourney Weaver was there. It was just so good. Yeah. But no, and that's, and I love that idea too, where it's like, because it also reminds me of this narrator in a certain way as well, because some people would look at her and like, just be like, oh my God, I can't believe you did that. Like, you know, do you understand the ramifications that what you've done? And it's like, yeah, it's super polarizing. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, And that's a very good comparison for Cabin in the Woods, because people would call Rather than calling the Elder Gods monsters, they would call these two people monsters yeah. for upsetting the whole system and killing everyone. Which is weird. It might have been us in this reality, us included. Like, we'd be like, everything was all right, and apparently all that needed to happen was just five people needed to die. And then it's weird, because then it gets us into that Omelas territory, like, wow, how much are you willing to put up with? So, so at this point, we're just haggling on how much blood is necessary for yeah. this clean world, right? <laughs> how much blood do you think? Uh, you know, I could never do more than a pint. 
Uh, any more than a pint, and I start seeing the unicorns. All right. Well, this has been Greetings from the Verizone. I've been Bryce Skidmore. And I have, as always, been David Leskin. Have yourselves a good night, folks, and we will see you next month. Nanu, nanu. Nanu, nanu. you are now hearing is the sacrificial dance from Igor Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, which, as we speak, is hurtling through space on a golden record attached to the Voyager probe. Thank you for listening to this episode of Greetings from the Mirror Zone. Join us next week when we will be joined by a guest to discuss two short story fantasies, Saki's The Interlopers and Stockton's The Lady or the Tiger. Please like and subscribe to us, Uh, give us a good review on iTunes and SoundCloud, and uh, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. I am at Bryce underscore Skidmore, and Luskin is at Alfred Packer. Have a good night.